everybody and welcome to a new episode of Copper Science. So we're interviewing Peter Murray Rust about some of his work related to data mining in research. Uh, so most specifically the Content Mine project. So hello Peter, how are you doing today? I'm very happy and it's a nice day in Cambridge, England. Great. And we also have with us today Rachel. How are you doing Rachel? Hello, yes, it's uh, lovely to be back and uh, thanks for having me here again. Great. Okay, so let's get started. So we'll first start talking about Peter. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yes, okay. Um, I'm a chemist, um, a crystallographer, uh, but I've got extremely interested in knowledge in general, scientific and medical knowledge. And so I've been developing informatics tools to collect and spread uh, knowledge to the world. That's something I've been doing for about 20 years, um, and so both a technologist developing tools, a uh, advocate, so I have to fight for this in um, uh, political arenas, and I also uh, hope we can build communities as well. So can you tell us a little bit more about these tools? Right. So most science uh, is published primarily as documents rather than machine-readable data, and the commonest way is PDF. PDF is good for humans with eyeballs, but it's not very good for blind people or for machines. Uh, And so the tools have to convert PDF uh, into something machines can understand. And there are roughly the following types of stuff in a document. There's text. And that's harder than it looks. Um, We have to convert it into words and paragraphs. There are diagrams, uh, things like uh, XY plots or uh, pie charts. Uh, There's tables um, with columns and rows. Um, And then there are specialist things like chemical diagrams. I'm a chemist or phylogenetic trees, uh, which uh, give evolutionary diagrams in um, a diagrammatic form. And most scientific disciplines have got their own type of diagram and notation. So ultimately, we want to be able able to uh, support a wide range of science. All the tools are open source um, and uh, we're always um, uh, open to people collaborating and adding um, stuff if they want to. So these tools are organized in the chain of tools called ContentMine. There's a website, contentmine.org, you can go visit it. And basically, as, as you just said, these tools will help someone go from the data extraction from uh, literature, uh, scientific literature, until really understanding different sections uh, of that literature and different kind of contents uh, of that literature. So then uh, I guess there are also some analysis tools behind that to cross-correlate, maybe compare. What kind of analysis do we do once we have that information? Right. Well, you're absolutely right um, uh, that that's uh, the chain. But of course, not everybody has to use exactly the same chain. So we've built a um, an information structure, uh, semantics, uh, which allows people to uh, either use our analysis tools or to use their own analysis tools. So we have a well-defined specification where If somebody wants to use our tools, we uh, use tools such as data tables, uh, which is a JavaScript way of uh, uh, looking at tools or D3 or something like that. Uh, But they can also use IPython notebooks or R or any of the analysis tools they want. So we're not constraining people to think in a particular way. Great. And this project started in 2014, right? Yes. Um, uh, That's when I got funding from the Shuttleworth Foundation. You know, they appoint fellows to change the world. And I was very fortunate to be appointed a fellow. Uh, They give you funding um, and they are a marvelous organization. And the funding allowed me to hire some people and explore this uh, and to build tools and disseminate them. Uh, I have been building chemical tools for much longer, probably about 15 years before that. So those are tools to find specific uh, data, like data specific to the field of chemistry in this mass of data that you can gather from papers. Yes, so just to say that the tools we have are generic so that you can search um, any set of documents for um, things like tables and diagrams, but the 
particular speciality I've worked most on uh, is chemistry. So you can actually extract chemical formulae and chemical reactions and interpret chemical spectra as well um, in terms of data uh, as well as uh, visual um, representation. Before we get into more details, like we'll go into each different step, the data extraction, normalizing yeah. the data, et cetera. Uh, could we uh, talk a little bit more about Content Mine itself? So right now, Content Mine is a nonprofit company. Uh, I mean, a nonprofit. Yeah. So <laughs> we are deliberately nonprofit. Um, that's because uh, in this area, uh, many companies start off as nonprofit or community uh, companies, and then they get purchased by mega corporations who close them down uh, and um, uh, they become walled gardens. And we wanted to prevent that. So I have a colleague in um, Shuttleworth who's a lawyer, and he's drafted us an open lock, which is a, a legal um, uh, declaration that this company cannot be turned into a closed uh, company and will always remain open. Um, so the motivation uh, is to do it for the community as opposed to doing it for um, private uh, profit. Um, the other advantage of open is that you can uh, do whatever you like with the uh, code or uh, the resources um, in terms of making your own versions and so on. Um, it becomes much easier to edit it, carry out new ideas and so forth. I was wondering, um, so what's your business model moving forward to maintain your funding stream? Are the Shuttleworth Foundation funding you like over a longer period of time or how does that work? No, the um, uh, the funding model for most non-profits uh, is that you get some initial funding, often philanthropic like Shuttleworth or uh, the US particularly has got uh, philanthropic funding um, and then uh, you need to look for a sustainable model and there are several models which work in our particular case we have roughly two income streams one is or probably three one is that we uh, are very happy to continue with um, charitable philanthropic funding so we had funding last year from wikimedia that we're very um, grateful for uh, the second is contract work uh, so that there are people who find our tools valuable and they will support us uh, to uh, develop those tools for their use um, and the third is to be able to create a wider range of generic tools uh, for which we can recover revenue um, we will use a an open source model but we will use um, ways of uh, creating enhanced products that people will want to pay for. So it's, it's hard work uh, to generate income, but other people have done that sort of thing. So if you look at things like R um, and um, uh, much of the um, NIME, KNIME is another one, K-N-I-M-E, these are organizations which are non-profit, but which generate um, income in uh, these type of ways. The, the clause you were talking about uh, earlier uh, is really important, I think, because today a lot of companies, it looks like they are fighting for the open data, open access. I'm thinking about ResearchGate, Academia and others, but they are companies and someday they could be purchased and all of that could be closed or taken by one of the big fives, for example. So having that should, I think, help the community get more involved into such a project. Uh, I absolutely agree. I don't think ResearchGate or um, uh, academia have ever been open. They've had a sort of, if you like, people have viewed them in a friendly manner, but they yeah, have but always not. been closed. The problems come with companies like Mendeley, which started off looking like a community company, but then got pub pub purchased by Elsevier. Yeah. The models which uh, I would aspire to are um, organizations such as uh, Wikipedia, Wikimedia, and um, Mozilla. These are uh, large enough and successful enough uh, that they are able to put a lot of effort into governance and to make sure that they are um, uh, essentially answerable only to the community and not to shareholders. But it's hard work. It is. So, Rachel, do you have any additional questions related to the broad project? Otherwise, we'll go into the details. 
Yeah, no, um, maybe it's time to dive into more of the nitty gritty about how we can use Content Mind to look at data contained within open access papers. So uh, perhaps, Peter, you'd like to run us through how I would start to use Content Mind to look at research into like my field of specialty, Huntington's disease. You know, how would I begin as a user with your software? Okay, well, uh, software is very flexible and we are reacting to what people actually want to do. Um, and we're also reacting to what people forbid us to do. It's very serious and difficult. So um, the model that I had probably about two years ago was that we were going to um, use subscription content, so the whole of the scientific literature, extract the facts uh, and publish the facts. And um, the point is that facts are not copyrightable. And in the UK, it's legal to mine uh, closed source literature for research purposes for non-commercial work. And so long as what you publish is not the copyrighted bit, but the facts, uh, we thought that we could do that. Now, it turned out that we got a lot of pushback from the publishers, and I can go into that later. Uh, it's really, you know, I'm afraid rather confrontational. We also found that universities didn't like their subscription content being used in this way. Um, and so we've had to change the model. And so we have two models. Um, one model is that we mine the open um, access literature. Uh, by the way, open access is, the, um, is what applies to documents, publications, open source applies to code. So I'll, I'll try and make sure I'm uh, correct on that one. And open data is um, uh, the same thing for, uh, for data. So there's a lot of open access literature in bioscience, um, and that's collected in Europe PubMed Central, uh, which is a mirror of um, NIH's PubMed Central, but located in um, the UK. And it has a good API and so we've developed a tool, and this was written by uh, Rick Smith-Anna, called Get Papers, uh, where you can just put in your query, Huntington's, and you put it into your PubMed Central, and it will give you, I'm going to guess, something like um, uh, 10,000 hits. I don't know what it would be, uh, but it's more than you might think. Um, and what Rick's tool did is very clever, uh, very simple, very clever. Uh, it will then download all those papers for you without you having to do anything more. Um, and that means that you will then have, um, say, five or 10,000 papers on your hard disk, which were hit by that general query, Huntingdon's. Um, now, you'll find that uh, some of those are not relevant. And in fact, we find a huge um, attenuation, um, a triage, uh, and you might find that actually only 10% of those were actually what you wanted. So uh, we've developed tools which allow you to go through the full text of the paper uh, and query it for the things you might be interested. So you might, for example, find that the word Huntingdon came in as a an author or Huntingdon as a place in uh, near Cambridge in England or whatever, and you obviously want to get rid of those. Um, and uh, you can do that by uh, simple um, textual searching. Very often, Huntingdon's would have a, a, an apostrophe and a comma, or it would be called Huntingdon's disease or something of that sort. And so by refining the text search, you'll be able to narrow it down. You then uh, will probably want to uh, look for some particular uh, feature of that. So you might say, well, we're particularly interested in the genetics of Huntington's disease. Or you might say, we're particularly interested in HDAC6. Did I get that right, Rachel? Um, <laughs> yes. So you might say, okay, I only want papers which where Huntington's co-occurs with HDAC6. And that will bring you down to a much smaller number. Let's, I'm guessing here, say 500, something of that sort. Um, so now on your um, hard disk, you've got 500 papers which are likely to be worth investigating in some way. So all of that is possible with the Content Mind stack of tools. You've now moved on to tools we call Norma, uh, which does normalization of the papers, uh, and Amy. Um, Amy is um, 
uh, our mascot, uh, a kangaroo, and it stands for amanuensis, a scholarly assistant. So um, Amy and Norma will uh, query the paper in various ways um, to narrow it down and to find out not just that it contains HDAC6, but also where in the paper it talks about it and what the role is. So by using this tool chain, we're able to rapidly home in on the um, tip using uh, the scientific terminology. So does Content Mine have a way that if I search for HDAC6, it would also pull up papers which were about HDAC6, but maybe refer to it by a different G-name? Or is that something that the user has to manually do? is working in conjunction with Wikidata. Uh, now, for those listeners who haven't heard Wikidata, uh, if you look at the Wikipedia page, uh, you'll see on the right-hand side a little box of facts. Um, and that's whether it's a protein, whether it's a gene, uh, whether it's a city. And it will tell you things like um, covered and um, uh, what it's is and things like that. That's called an info box. And um, uh, although it doesn't always happen this way, think of that box then being put into a database. Um, and that database is called Wikidata. And in Wikidata, there are now 40 million facts of that sort. Um, uh, and they're all systematized, editable, and they've all got unique identifiers. So if you go to, um, and I might do this while I'm talking, we'll see how it gets on. Um, if I go to HDAC6 and Wikidata, and you can do this at home, listeners, HDAC6 Wikidata, and off it goes. And it will tell you that HDAC6 is Q1825-1164. Now, you don't have to remember it. The uh, thing will do that. But... Um, uh, that is the unique identifier. So um, it's different from any other HDAC6. And it's a protein coding gene in the species Mus musculus, which I happen to know is a mouse. Um, and on the right-hand side, it will tell you uh, that it's also name, known as HD6, SFC6, MHDA2, and histone deacetylase 6. So does that make sense, uh, Rachel? Yes. Indeed. So that means that we by putting in um, HDAC6, uh, it means that it will also search with MHDA2. So you don't have to know about this. Uh, you can um, uh, assume it's got at least five other aliases here that it will search with. And um, the good news is that if your synonym isn't in there, you can add it into Wikidata. So the great thing about Wikidata is it's a community resource. And if you find that it's missing something or it's wrong, uh, then you can add it in. And uh, the community will say thank you. Um, and if they uh, have some uh, uh, concerns about it, they'll query you. And gradually, the both of you will work out what the best way of doing it is. And then I look down and it tells me that this is found in Mus musculus. It's on mouse chromosome X, which I didn't know. It's on the reverse strand of it, which I didn't know. Its genome start is 7930120, uh, which I didn't know either. And its genome end is 79478.82. Uh, its cytogenic uh, location is XA1. Oh, you get the point. I won't go on through the whole lot. But it's actually all. <laughs> Thank you for the lesson yeah <laughs> it's got all of this stuff and that is all brought in from a mixture of gen bank and probably because it's a mouse from jackson uh, and the rest of it so and it tells you all about the author logs in the other species so in uh, homo sapiens it's called hdac6 whereas in c elegans it's called hda hyphen six um, and so on so uh, you have all of that immediately and if it's not right again 
um, you correct it yourself or you put a note on the talk page saying this isn't right. So in my view, Wikidata is going to become the go-to place for highly used, uh, validated um, science. I think it's absolutely fantastic. There's lots of other stuff there if you browse through it. Uh, it gives you it in different languages and uh, who knows what. And um, the whole of bioscience is rapidly becoming captured as Wikidata. Uh, so it's just incredible. So we have bolted Wikidata into the Content Mind tools. Uh, I have a wonderful colleague here in um, Cambridge, Charles Matthews, who's a Wikimedian of 15 years or more, uh, which is about as far back as it goes. Um, and he's built 200 dictionaries of different sorts there. So uh, if you want a dictionary for mice, uh, you go to Mus Musculus, and there's a whole Wikidata set of, uh, of animals. If you want to know about your uh, inhibitors, there's a whole set of chemical um, compounds and so forth. So the whole of public scientific knowledge is being encoded in Wikidata. Great, okay. And thanks to that, you're able to track specific uh, information uh, among the papers. So how can a researcher actually use this? So you talked about a use case, which is reducing the amount of papers I need to investigate. But then what kind of new research or new perspective does it open for a researcher today? Well, it enables research and it may even suggest research. So. Uh, to give a simple example, if I search for Zika, Z-I-K-A, uh, in the literature, first it will tell me that Zika is um, a forest, a virus, and a disease, right? Okay, and you might, let's assume that we're interested in, uh, in the disease. Well, it will... Uh, if you ask what other things are mentioned in the papers, it will say, well, I've got a lot of species called Ides aegypti and um, tiger mosquito and things like that. And so it becomes pretty clear that Zika is associated with mosquitoes. Now, you go out and ask people in the street what spread Zika, and most of them don't know that it's spread by mosquitoes. Uh, whereas if you um, uh, ask Wikidata, um, uh, sorry, if you ask Content Mind Toolkit, it will tell you uh, that mosquitoes seem to be very important in most of the papers uh, and so on. So you learn some new science. Then you might ask questions like, let's say that you're involved in healthcare policy. You might say, well, what sort of insecticides do people use uh, to kill these mosquitoes? Or are there other ways of controlling them? So you would then start looking for papers which contain mosquitoes and insecticides. Um, and um, that's exactly the use case that I'm doing with my co-director, Jenny Malloy. Jenny's a uh, did her DPhil in Oxford on mosquitoes, um, and she's a plant scientist in Cambridge. She's also won a Shuttleworth Fellowship, but she wants uh, to find data about uh, papers about mosquitoes and insecticides and the other stuff that goes with it. So, you know, what does the scientific literature tell you about that? And that will probably then suggest new ideas of research. So it's very, very powerful, but it does depend on your approach to research. You might be adding it as an ancillary to your own particular research. So it's um, helping you to decide what experiments to do, or you might be doing what I call knowledge-driven research, where you're actually finding new science uh, from the literature itself. Great. And to do this, um, what do I need to know uh, computer science-wise? Do I need to know any specific languages? Uh, no. Um, what uh, we're doing at the moment was uh, we're built. Uh, there are two ways of distributing systems, or rather two extremes. One is that you do everything on the web, um, yeah. and um, uh, you have a web service uh, and so on. And we went down that route and thought, well, let's do that. Uh, but then um, uh, we found that we couldn't distribute anything which wasn't absolutely open access. And the problem is that you've got to put a lot of effort into uh, making sure that something is copyright cleared and so on, because many publishers are very unclear, uh, often, I'm afraid, deliberately, in what the license is. Um, so 
we've moved to a model where we see this being done on the scientists' workbench themselves. And this is uh, the advantage of this is that they will then have legitimate use to a much wider number of papers, which they will have collected because they have subscription access or because uh, people have mailed them to them or other legitimate approaches. And that means that uh, the average scientist has probably got between 500 and 5,000 um, uh, PDFs on their machine. Um, and um, uh, so the tools are being uh, developed so that they can mine those papers and um, uh, look for things they want. And they know, they know they're comprehensive because they've selected the papers uh, that they want to read. What it means is that we have to build stuff that installs easily. Uh, we um, have tried a number of approaches. So uh, one of the things that uh, we did until recently is we built um, virtual machines, uh, which would then run on any uh, platform. You'd install a virtual machine um, and run a Unix system on your own machine. But uh, we're looking for things which are in languages which install in um, uh, any machine uh, and then uh, they're driven by uh, a user interface that um, scientists will understand. So it's always evolving here and one of the nice things is that we've had some wonderful young people who've uh, built um, interfaces and even just today one of them uh, has mailed us very exciting interface which she's built and um, two years ago uh, she hadn't done any uh, computing at all great okay are these uh, uh, folks who are affiliated with your uh, fellowship scheme Peter? Uh, yes there's three uh, branches to content mine advocacy where we try and uh, make a better environment for people to work in politically and so we engage with publishers and um, politicians and try and get laws changed and so on. Uh, there's tools which we've talked about and the third is community so it's ACT and C is the community. Now you can't grow uh, communities to order uh, but you can help nurture them and what we did um, 18 months ago is we um, offered competitive fellowships to young people uh, to do um, part-time work uh, with our tools. We gave them a, a small cash prize and we also mentored them every two weeks. So the, uh, we had a community of six uh, people of whom the youngest was actually still at school in the Netherlands. He was 15 um, and he was interested in conifers and the terpenes that they create. Um, but all of them are interested in bioscience. We made that stipulation because we knew then that they would have access to enough literature to do uh, something useful. Um, and they were with us for about uh, uh, six months. And during that period, some of them uh, used our tool. They all used our tools. Some of them developed add-ons to the tools and so forth. And gradually, uh, this helped us uh, make the tools better and so on. The problem we have with tools is that we're often reliant on what happens at the remote sites, either the repositories such as Europe PubMed Central or publisher sites, and the tools um, uh, sometimes stop working because the publishers have changed their interfaces without telling people. Um, and so uh, we needed some fairly patient people in the first instance. But Lars built a very nice um, set of what he called cards so you could search for uh, what species were present in which PubMed Central paper and so on. And more recently, I won't say who it is because, you know, she's going to uh, make her an announcement soon, but uh, she's built a very nice tool which allows you to select on different items in dictionaries. So you can say she's interested in um, diseases and conditions. And so you can select which of those conditions you want to study. And um, one of the things nowadays is that the number of tools which are available openly, particularly JavaScript tools, is increasing uh, in both scope and capacity, uh, scope, capacity and quality. Um, so uh, as we go on, often you can solve a problem by finding the right tool and bolting it, bolting it in rather than having to write uh, code from scratch.
I had a. I wanted to know a little bit more about the team right now because you you talked about your team several times. But do you have a lot of contributors to the code that are not part of the team? Um, it comes and goes. Uh, at the moment, uh, there are not many um, remote contributors uh, because the code is actually changing um, uh, quite frequently. And so most of the code is developed in-house. It's all public on um, GitHub uh, and, you know, you can uh, download it and compile it and run it. But you, you, you need a fair, you need to be pretty patient if you're going to add your own stuff to it at the moment. We believe that we will shortly come to a stage where we can say to the world, okay, we've got a more stable platform and um, we're happy for people to contribute. In this area, the key thing is not actually the code, it's the specification of the information. So we have an approach which relies uh, very much on straightforward file systems and directories uh, and doesn't rely on having to use particular databases and so on. But we're making sure that we're consistent in our approach uh, before you know, we encourage people to use it. They can use it at the moment, absolutely. And and the person I've just talked about has indeed done that. But you know, if we suddenly find we have to change the spec, it's not fair to people, you know, to encourage them to use it, and then they find that their code crashes because we've changed the spec under them. So basically, can we say that Content Mine is in its alpha right now and it will be open sourced once it's in its beta and more it, stable? Well, first of all, it is open source, full stop. Right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, it is, I'd say it's alpha. Um, bits of it are certainly uh, beta. So the stuff that uh, Rick Smith Anna wrote, uh, Get Papers and um, uh, Quick Scrape, uh, I would certainly say are beta. Um, and their problems are primarily when publishers change things and so on. But my colleague Joe Brook has mended Get Papers recently. Um, so uh, it should be um, up and running perfectly happily and, and people can add things to it if, if necessary. So it's a mixture of alpha and beta. Yeah, so um, just speaking of publishers, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about sort of the, you know, the good and bad experiences that you've had dealing with different publishers as you're mining uh, manuscripts that they have online for uh, data and uh, what lessons you might have learned from doing that. Okay. Um... Uh, this will take about a week for me to tell you. <laughs> uh, <no. laughs> okay, quick summary. Um, copyright is the most complex creation of the human race, and it's almost uniformly impossible for the average mortal to understand. Combined with the fact that many publishers are either not competent to produce things which uh, are consistent with modern um, methods or, unfortunately, some of them, I think, deliberately make it difficult uh, to read what they've got and so on. So you've got, at one end of the spectrum, publishers such as uh, the open access publishers, um, ones like uh, PLOS, um, uh, MDPI, uh, eLife, Acta Crystallographica, and so on, who create um, open access publications. And generally, they create them to a good modern specification um, where they use Unicode, where they use um, as HTML, where they use CSS and things like that. And when you get that, uh, it's relatively easy to consume them and um, use them. At the other end, you have publishers who do not want their websites to be used at all. Um, about six or seven years ago, the world woke up to the fact that text and data mining, as it's called, or data analytics, um, was going to be really important. Um, and in the UK, uh, we campaigned for this. We advocated for it. Um, and the libraries and the universities and the um, uh, civil rights organizations all campaigned for it. And so did a, a considerable number of uh, publishers, but other publishers argued against it, how it would destroy their business and so forth. And this is very standard in this sort of area. Nonetheless, the UK government went ahead and passed the law. It was a rather weak law, but it said that you can do text and data mining for non-commercial purposes for research. Um, and that was in 2014. I believed at that stage that what would happen is that the 
I'll call them the uh, closed publishers um, because it's irrelevant for open access publishers. Um, but the closed, closed access publishers would then say, okay, the law's been changed, we will comply with it. What happened was that the larger publishers, um, many of them actually have made it as difficult as possible to do this. They've done it by a variety of things. They've done it by trying to suggest that actually everything has to go through them. Uh, so to build uh, walled gardens and so on. Um, it's epitomized by Elsevier, who when this came out, put forward a whole load of pseudo contracts that quotes allowed you to do text and data mining, but actually uh, either restricted it or meant that you had to ask them every time or only give you li limited rights and so on. And I challenged this in public, you'll find it on my blog, and they changed their contract several times. They then said, well, actually what you want is not to do text and mine, data mining from our website, but you want to do it from our API. An API is a better technical way to do it, but the problem with APIs uh, is that you do not have any independent verification of what the publishers actually do. So my um, problem with APIs is it allows the publishers to do two things, uh, to snoop, that is to uh, record and monitor everything that uh, a miner does, and I'm afraid I've got a nasty, suspicious mind that I don't trust publishers by default any more than I trust Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. So um, what... Uh, it's a good point. It's a fair it's point. An, it's an absolutely yeah. critical point. So snooping means that they know everything I do. Uh, they can use my presence online for whatever purpose they like. That's the first thing. The second, they can control. So they control the search interface I see. I do not know that uh, it contains the, the whole of their material, and I also don't know that they haven't in some way um, uh, modified this. And so, for example, there are papers on publishers' websites which are critical of the publishers. And I would not necessarily know whether or not they had actually put these papers up and whether they'd hidden them. This all comes about because uh, scholarly publication is not regulated. And I argue that we have to have a regulated scholarly publishing industry. I'm in a very small minority of people. Um, most people uh, seem to don't seem to understand the point. Um, and most libraries seem to uh, believe that, well, they have to do what the publisher said rather than challenge it. So I'm one of the very few people who challenges this. But I actually feel that um, quite apart from uh, quality and things uh, that the publishers actually produce the wrong type of interface to interact with their material. It gets worse than that because the questions to what you can legally do is incredibly unclear. And I believe that some of the publishers deliberately obfuscate this. So rather than calling something open access, which in itself is actually very poorly defined, they call it things like author choice. Now, author choice is not self-explanatory. That, I think, is the American Chemical Society uh, terminology. And various, uh, I think Springer had one which was called Springer choice. Well, when you de delve into these things, you often find they have more restrictive licenses uh, than the um, uh, aspirations of the Budapest Open Access um, Initiative, um, and that they actually uh, limit what you can do. And since if you break copyright or you break terms and conditions, you can be sued, um, it is very difficult to know what you can do with these, uh, I would say, um, semi-restrictive publisher um, uh, licenses. It also means that you've got to understand legally anything up to 50 publisher licenses. I mean, I have tools which will do the top 25 publishers, most of whom are, are closed access. Um, and um, I do not, I could not say in court what each one of them um, allows. And unfortunately, no one, including your paid lawyer, 
will actually say what open access means, the only way to find out is to go to court, uh, unless it has a license such as CC BY. Now, the problem is uh, the natural thing for a young early career researcher to do, or any other researcher, but most of this is done by early career researchers, is to mine the literature uh, because it's a natural thing to do. And then what they find is the publisher has been monitoring them uh, and uh, they then either mail the university and tell them to stop this research because it's dealing their content or they simply cut the university off without warning um, and that causes great distress to researchers and it also means the person who's been quite recently mining gets flat not only from the university but from um, the uh, researchers who are cut off. So it's a totally unsatisfactory uh, state of affairs. It's actually getting worse in Europe because um, although uh, some of us are trying to change copyright to allow freedom here, um, the more the copyright gets uh, redrafted, um, the more restrictive it becomes. So we're in the situation where the publishers make the de facto rules. Nobody except people like me challenging. I mean, I would say that universities and their libraries uh, have been woefully sleepy on this. They have done very little. There are some exceptions. So um, Lero and LIBA, the European Library Associations and universities, uh, sorry, the other way around, LIRA's universities, LIBA's libraries, um, have worked very hard on that. But your average academic library, certainly in the UK and often in the US, simply goes along. If the publisher says, you can't do this, they say, oh, sorry, publisher, we won't do it, rather than challenging it. Now, I'm going to, uh, I've been invited to um, the US uh, next weekend to uh, a panel which is um, discussing this. There's a whole load of um, uh, experts in this area, and, um, and it's going to be very exciting on uh, the, cons the, the um, constraints on uh, text and data mining. So I'll find out more then in a week's time. But at the moment, a researcher who's doing any amount of this runs the risk. I don't know what the risk is because uh, this is now normally subterranean, uh, but from time to time, researchers get cut off by publishers and um, condemned to their university by publishers. So does that cover all of that? Yeah, no, thank I you very much for uh, <laughs> raising all these issues. And uh, it's really interesting to hear, you know, uh, your side of this and, uh, you know, what the publishers are doing and so forth. And I think a lot of people who uh, be listening to this podcast will be highly sympathetic to everything that you've been talking to us about. So on that theme, I was just wondering, you know, what can we as the open community do to support Content Mine and what can users do to help help you with this project? Okay. Well, as I said, there are three things, advocacy, community, and tools. Uh, the more that you can raise awareness of this totally unsatisfactory state of affairs, uh, the better. Um, uh, it's been estimated that if somebody did this properly um, and uh, wrote to publishers and got licenses to do this and so on, the actual opportunity cost would be about $500,000, something of that sort. It's incredibly tedious and incredibly um, uh, time consuming. Uh, so anything you can do to make uh, people aware of this problem, um, uh, the better. And whether you sit, whether you do this to um, universities, uh, to legislators, uh, to civil rights organizations, um, you know, all are appropriate and, and so on. Um, and I don't know whether you have particular influence in Canada, but uh, that would be a very good place to get this um, di dialogue going. On the community, I think we will certainly do. try. Yes, indeed. Uh, expect the most likely thing is total apathy. Uh, after that, uh, you may get some enthusiasm. Uh, my experience is libraries are see this as an issue, but they're not actually prepared to do anything. They're prepared to talk a lot. They retweet what I say and so on, but they don't actually go out and do things. Um, and in the UK, no library in the UK has actually done anything positive to facilitate text and data mining that I know of. And I, I see myself as a UK 
um, expert um, on this. I may have missed some things, but it, it's that sort of level. The second thing um, that uh, one can do is to uh, find um, people doing this, particularly young people, and support them, uh, help build the community. And so what we've said on this blog will be really valuable um, in that um, in that way. And the third thing is to encourage people to share tools, uh, to um, um, you know, build extensions, uh, things of that sort. Uh, so, uh, Rachel, does that answer that? Yes, it does. Thank you very much. Uh, maybe you can tell us um, a few little teasers about uh, what the future of Content Mine holds and uh, any features or developments that will be coming in the near um, near future. Okay. Well, um, uh, we're very committed, I think, to um, uh, a client side approach at the moment. So, the idea that the um, scientist is in control of uh what they want to do um the if you like the i won't call it price but the um the corollary of that is that they need to know how to install software and they have to be good natured uh, when it doesn't always work but we we see this as a communal activity uh so for example um uh, amelia whom you know um and interviewed you as well uh I said to her, okay, when you've um, recorded all of these contributions, uh, you might like to do some uh, textual analysis on this. And by the way, content mind software can be applied to any field of endeavor. It's not just science. Uh, so uh, she can apply these tools to, um, you know, her interviews. Um, uh, and she said, well, I don't know how to do um, computing. I said, all you do is go out and find, you know, a geek next to you and smile at them and say, please, can you help me install IPython notebook or R or whatever? And off she went and within two days she came back and says, wow, you know, I've got, uh, I've got this all up and running and I got help from people and so on. So doing it in a group is really important. I think it's also fair to say that we, we are very keen to, um, run a second round of content mind fellowships. Um, uh, it's a question of getting a bit of funding, and so we're actively looking for funding at the moment. Uh, so if you know of anybody who's actually interested in that sort of thing, or if there's a, a particularly Canadian aspect to it, you know, if we said, okay, well, could we jointly um, find, you know, a, uh, a small amount of funding in uh, Canada to get Canadian fellows, um, you know, uh, maybe, and I'm thinking out loud here, that we could um, uh, get a francophone group because uh, so much is done in um, English. Could we, um, you know, have a, a francophone approach? Because our tools will um, uh, read French, um, you know, and normalize it. It won't necessarily um, understand it, <laughs> but you know what I mean. So the idea of building up French dictionaries could be a very strong thing there. And... Um, what we're looking at is something that the scientist owns, tools that they can use and build up their own resource and also uh, uh, linking into the wider infrastructure of, of, of modern open um, analysis tools. And I, I would add to that that we absolutely see things happening with Wikidata. Uh, we're holding our breath because we put in a, um, a proposal to... Um, uh, Wikimedia for um, uh, something called Science Source, spelled S-O-U-R-C-E. And basically, this is a collection of, um, this will be a collection of 30,000 of the most important uh, papers uh, related particularly to systematic reviews um, in medicine so that the Wikimedians can uh, decide what the best sources are uh, for medicine. Now, because it's going to be Wikimedia, and I'm talking as if we've been funded, so um, you'll have to make that um, uh, assumption. Um, uh, that will allow us uh, to um, have really uh, a new generation of um, scholarly papers. So those papers will uh, not only be curated and normalized, so they'll all be in um, HTML, all in Unicode, uh, etc., but they will be annotatable so people can um, edit them and comment on them if they don't like bits of it or uh, they want them to link into other things. They will be linked into all the dictionaries. So 
Um, let's say that you've got Huntingdon's and genes. You'll have all your Huntingdon's papers and um, uh, every gene will be uh, linked in that paper. Every link will go to Wikidata and Wikipedia. So you'll know what that gene does. Every species that it's been done in will link to Wikidata. So it'll be a, a completely new way, uh, a new um, sort of advance in uh, how we use the scholarly literature. And the reason we can do it uh, and very few other people would feel happy about doing it. A publisher can't do it because it involves taking publications from every publisher. And most academics won't do it because they don't get, um, uh, you know, impact uh, factor brownie points for it. But we get the satisfaction of knowing we've created something that the community absolutely really uh, wants. So the idea that we have, um, you know, the top papers and these papers will be ones that the community says these are the most important papers for us you can see how this is exciting with regard to research a researcher comes on and says okay let's say that you've got a hundred papers there on huntington's they will be the ones rachel that you think are the most important papers for huntington's and uh they will have to be the open access ones of course uh but for many cases open access will give you all you want because if you want the introduction as opposed to the precise results, then you'll get just as good an introduction in an open access paper as elsewhere. So you can see how when somebody comes in to start their research, uh, they will use these papers. If somebody's teaching a um, uh, an undergraduate course on Huntington's, uh, they will say, well, here's this. You don't have to draw your own pictures of what the HDAC6 receptor looks like, because here it is. And if uh, something comes along and says, well, actually, it's not just HDAC6, it's HDAC6A, B, C, and something, then this gets updated in the same way as Wikidata and Wikipedia get updated, and you're not left with an out-of-date textbook uh, so that you, you've got uh, information which isn't up, up to. So, uh, so, Rachel, does that excite you as far as... Um, Huntington's concerns. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think it's uh, really awesome to know that all of this information is just sat at our fingertips. So, uh, yeah, I should be getting on content mine ASAP before I get back uh, in the lab. Absolutely. And if you find, say, a summer intern or something who wants some experience, they're incredibly good at, um, you know, if you get one which gets excited, then, you know, they can do uh, a lot of the project work uh with you they're not slaves quite the reverse you know it's part of their first introduction <laughs> into real scientific research yeah it sounds amazing it is great so i think we're getting at the end of our talk so last few things are how people uh, how can people react and learn more about the project so if you can tell us uh the website if there are any particular resources they should know and maybe the twitter to contact you get more information if there's a mailing list the website is contentmind.org uh the software is all on github under github slash content um uh we tweet under uh at the content mine um and so on i think these are the main uh ways of keeping in touch we haven't um, done as much as we should with ma mailing list, and we're going to uh, revitalize that um, and so on. Um, so I think that's uh, most of it, isn't it? Great. Well, would you like to add anything? No, other than to say what a wonderful group you are. 